Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another essay by me, Zachary Thatcher, on The Thatcher Report. You can read the essays and look at all the photos on medium.com slash Thatcher hyphen report. Only one T in Thatcher, as I've been saying my entire life. Thanks, ancient relatives, for not putting another middle T in there. That would have been so much easier. Today, I'm going to be reading my latest essay called Nomad. I wrote it in Charlotte, Vermont, and in August 2020, and I'm recording it in Charlotte, Vermont, in August 2020. I'm getting a little bit faster at these things. Nomad. There's a Parsha in the Torah, a chapter in the five books of Moses, where Moses lists the many places where we camp during the long haul of Exodus. The 40 years of being frightened and foolish and angry and ignorant and sickened and lost and hungry and also unstoppable. None of those fleeing had ever been to Israel. At best, some of them knew the old stories. Most were unknowing. They were just packing, walking, worrying, hoping, unpacking. Starts all over again. And here's the thing, the lever where the unknowing movement lifts and takes off. To make it to the promised land, to arrive safe and sound, you have to believe the journey will end well. To fulfill the mission, you need faith you will arrive. It can't be a mistake that most of the five books of Moses describes a journey without end. Skip Genesis, and the entire Torah is a long travelogue. It starts with a slapdash liberation movement led by an inarticulate trust fund kid. It ends with what will become the most famous political speech in world history, still, to this day, given by an elder leader on the cusp of a land he can finally see but never touch. His long spiel, that's a book long, can be reduced to two instructions. Be brave and be just. Then it ends. We still haven't arrived. I like to think this incompletion gives the Torah a universal message. Forget about all the theology and legalisms for a moment. Just look at the story. You're on a trip. For it to end well, you have to continue. And to continue, you have to believe the striving is worth it. And it is in that striving that you discover meaning. When you read this Parsha, Numbers 33 in English, Matot Masai in Hebrew, this wisdom literature that's empowered and inspired billions and billions of people for thousands and thousands of years, you're like, um, those are a lot of weird names. Some are familiar from earlier chapters, maybe. Some I personally know from hiking in the Sinai as a college student. The whole place was sunblasted and rock-strewn, and the Gulf of Aqaba was like liquid sapphire. That gives me an idea, kind of, of a desert wilderness, but no one knows the exact locations of what Moses is talking about. We can only imagine what it was like back then, with 12 tribes on the run, united in flight, in God we trust. Recently, driving through upstate New York made me count all the places I've stayed since leaving Manhattan. It's been nearly a dozen different beds, feels like hundreds. All this movement in a time of stillness is as shocking and strange and liberating as you might think. And don't worry, I keep my social distance, I wear a mask, I rarely go inside any structure that's not my own. Every task ends and begins with hand sanitizer. Matot Masai, which I'm probably mispronouncing, Numbers 33, always honestly seemed kind of boring. It's a really long list of unfamiliar names of places I don't understand and have never been to. But now that I'm experiencing a journey of my own which feels so unending and strange, in the truest sense of that word, strange, 
a word that's spoken over and over in the Hebrew Bible to remind us that we were strangers once, so we must always be kind. Now that I'm deep into estrangement and reliant on kindness, Moses is telling Gain's urgency. So I wrote this in the essay, it never made any sense, but now it kind of does in the podcast. So close your eyes if that helps. Just take a moment, seriously. Just try to imagine yourself somewhere else. You're camping outside with friends and relatives. It's not Coachella. You rest on cushions and blankets under a dark sky strained with starlight. You finish dinner. The kids are asleep. Your tent is all set up nice and arranged just the way you like it. Your pack animals have been fed and hobbled and softly ruminate. You're with the adults and some of the more curious teenagers. You can see their faces by the light of fire. Your favorite storyteller stands and speaks. He recites the names of everywhere you have ever been since way back, since your parents' generation left that bad place three, no, four decades ago. It's a long list. You're kind of fuzzy on the first places because you were born in the road, but eventually, as he keeps going through the names, you start to remember. You know where you were born. You remember playing as a kid in the next one, two, three places he names. That valley, that well, that spring. Your partner next to you hmms as she remembers the place where you met. You put your arms around each other. The storyteller says another place name. Voices across the fire sigh in sad recognition. That's where their parents died. Another place comes up and now someone laughs. Their first kid was born there. Nostalgia and poignancy and regret and loss and warmth and then finally Nostalgia and poignancy and regret and loss and warmth, and then finally comfort unfurls within everyone in earshot. Remember mid-March? Everything was so scary. That was absolutely crazy. People sanitizing their groceries while other people said the disease wasn't happening. You couldn't find hand sanitizer anywhere. You felt like you were risking your life just to get gas. Remember the first time you put on a mask? It was so hot and alien and uncomfortable, you didn't even recognize yourself. And there were so many people dying back then, way too many. But we made it, this far at least. From Moses with the Israelites in circa 1500 BCE, to you reminiscing with your friends yesterday, it is the telling that orders experience. It makes it safe. It makes it coherent. You get it now. You're situated. We went from here to here to here. We went from polarized, bizarre, childish, and angry responses and spitball therapeutics to what is now a nearly universal, if imperfect, acceptance. This virus is real. COVID's not going away. COVID is a thing. It's hard to treat when it gets bad. No one wants it. I don't want it. You don't want it. Most of us, however begrudgingly, however belatedly, most of us will continue the same extreme measures of shutting down our world to stay safe. It's simple. When you go outside, you wear a mask. You don't really go inside anywhere. You don't really do anything except for get food and go out for an occasional meal and enjoy some time outside. That's it, people. Remember this. The chapter I'm talking about comes in Bamidbar, in the wilderness, a.k.a. the Book of Numbers. That's the fourth of five books. It's not the end. That's in Devarim, Deuteronomy. So we're being told to remember our story while we're still very much within the story. The lesson? Remember. Keep going. I drove on a quiet road in Columbia County, New York, through pastures and dales. 
At the intersections of country roads, farmers sold produce on long folding tables sheltered under open-sided tents. I brought plums and peaches from a young Mennonite woman standing on the edge of shade in one of those tents. A mango-like late afternoon sunlight shone on her white cap. She was chatty in her loneliness. We talked about the weather and where the fruit had been grown. We smiled under our masks at each other. At least I think so. Soon I accelerated to ascend a hill, and with it came a view, and suddenly I thought again of all the places I've stayed since living Manhattan to go, where exactly? I don't know. Somewhere safe. Somewhere with people who love me and whom I love. Somewhere in nature and not on nature, if you know what I mean. I can't describe it. I just know what it'll feel like. Many of us are like this. Okay, we're all like this. Even if you've been at home this entire time of COVID, even if you've never moved an inch as you watch your landscape constrict into a few patios and stoops, into the same street corners and repeated front lawns and one or two grocery shops and that same patch of park, if your sense of opportunity and exploration went from the entire world to a single square mile, even as you sit and read this on your phone or laptop or listen to it on your favorite app, we're all still racing through this together, confederated in time. I recently said this makes us like pilgrims, rocking on boats over watery depths as we escape oppression for distant shores. But pilgrims have a destination. So now I'm thinking, we've drifted past that. We've been blown off course. It's been long enough now that the coronavirus infectious disease is not new. It's been here. It's not going anywhere. It's going everywhere. Wealthy countries and even some poorer places, they've managed to tamp down the virus to reasonably safe levels, but not here. In the USA, the virus is abetted by a one-sided, fanatical, literally fatal political theology that is masterful at gaining power, but which, paradoxically, that makes it incapable of governance. We've seen this before in the early 2000s with Katrina, Iraq, and Wall Street. We saw it even earlier with recessions and the resurgence of massive income inequality, which is to say, massive and massive poverty, starting in the 1980s. Today, it's the same guarantee of incompetence at top, just with higher stakes. Racist, oligarchic, climate and virus deniers don't have solutions. They have anger and fear. And anger and fear takes you far in American politics, all the way to the top. We've seen it before, a couple of times in our lifetimes. But anger and fear prevents governance. Yeah, it does enable you to steal and cheat and hook up all your friends. That works great. But you can't lead to govern, to manage, to be successful at leading hundreds and hundreds of millions of people together. You have to have unconditional love for them, for everyone. That takes a courage of inclusion and empathy the Republican Party will never have, not until they start completely over again. Either that, or after a lot of ugliness and destruction, the party becomes a footnote in a political science textbook. Those are their choices. Not that many Democrats don't spend all their time in power enriching the country clubs while tossing a few crumbs to the masses, but it's a broad party. There are a lot of people out there with the immoral imagination to support people who have less money than them. It really shouldn't be that radical to think about, but apparently it is. But now, today, with America's Republicans in power but not in charge, it's the virus that's calling the shots. And with the coming cold, and with all the schools that are opening, life is going to get much worse. So, I guess, where does that leave me? Goodbye, pilgrims, and hello, nomads. Which is depressing, because at least pilgrims have religion, but that's how it is now. We're wandering. We're lost. We're aimless. 
The only thing we know for sure is that fall and winter will be heavy with death and isolation. I sure as hell hope not, but that's what seems like it's coming. Okay, put in the clutch, ease out of polemics, and shift into taking stock of how one of us has made it this far during these times. Lazman Hazay. For those who are curious, this is my Shehechianu, the Jewish prayer. Here are my encampments after New York from March 17, 2020 to today. After packing my car in 20 minutes and gunning through Westchester and Fairfield counties and into Massachusetts, I first slept in a Best Western hotel off a highway in Concord. Not planned. Let's just say it was better for my friend's family situation at the time that I didn't crash there while I figured out my next steps. The night shift receptionist at the Best Western was a middle-aged woman with a smoker's laugh. She gave me two welcome gift bags for extra water and snacks. Her small kindness meant more to me over the next coming days than she might have imagined. Thank you. Then it was on to the barn apartment in the heart of Carlisle, Massachusetts. Each week, I paid the owner $300 in cash, never knowing how long I'd stay. Solitary weeks soon herded into months. The bed was so lumpy it was savage. The place had dumpster furniture and there was no real kitchen, but I had no choices and I made it work. And despite my fetching, they had to pull me out of there. Someone had rented it for May. By then, I had put away my winter layers and wore t-shirts and jeans. I moved to the appropriately named Spring Hill Road Airbnb in-law apartment on the Concord-Acton border, just a few miles from the farm. If Carlisle is sort of like the Berkshires, then Acton is sort of like hell. You can't walk to any shops or services. Houses are all McMansions or mid-century ranches. A strip mall causes Jane Jacobs to groan in heaven each time I buy groceries from a middling supermarket. It was not very pleasant suburban landscape. The apartment itself was about as pleasant as the outdoor surroundings. It was overwhelmed by way too many overstuffed leather recliners. I'm talking seating for at least 10, but there was no table or desk to work. It was basically a dumping ground for the owner's old furniture. So I escaped a couple of times to explore the area. I went on a two-night interlude in an East Hampton Airbnb. Not that East Hampton. I'm talking about the outskirts of Northampton, Massachusetts, near all those colleges that need to stay closed. I was there to explore the area for a place to live. Immediately, I felt in my heart what I knew in my head. I was a stranger. It would be impossible to meet new people at a time like this. But something had told me to attend to a special place. At one point, driving north, I turned off the highway onto a dirt road. In second gear, I crawled along until I parked at a boat ramp. I got out and walked down steep banks. An urge I obeyed but didn't really understand brought me to the shores of the river that carves this pioneer valley. It was wide and silent and coursing with blue-green water. The Connecticut River is New England's longest river. It stretches all the way from Quebec through a corner of Maine, then it divides New Hampshire from Vermont, runs through Massachusetts where I was, and empties at Essex, Connecticut into the Long Island Sound. My dad, Fred Thatcher, was born by its banks in northern New Hampshire. Then, he grew up by its shores further south in Massachusetts, in a rural hamlet where he picked Connecticut Valley tobacco leaf as an 11-year-old just to survive. Feeling connected to the wide, flowing waters and thinking of my father's body coated with nicotine gave me a sense of connection. But it was remembered. It wasn't now. There was another interlude. Three nights in Vermont when I stayed in a small outbuilding in Bristol with a Mason mom and her two boys, and two nights at a Stowe motel as I realized, hey, Vermont. 
There were two nights as well in Katie M's chic Chelsea apartment that lay empty after she and her fiancé had fled to the Midwest. Thanks to their generosity, I had a stylish place to stay. With laundry. That was huge. That was the first time I had that in months. I was there together with my minion, Kola Kafar, to celebrate Shabbat. Then, on July 6, my Airbnb in Acton expired, thankfully. I will not miss its 1980s sitcom furniture, its plaid curtains, yep, plaid curtains, and the Reagan-era carpeting. So, that day, I packed and drove to Charlotte, Vermont, where I am now. I'm soon unpacked, a few hours later, into another in-law apartment that was really strangely similar to where i just come from. Think old carpeting and vinyl bathroom floors. But this space contains the critical ingredient missing in Acton. Love. I moved into what can only be described as my friend's family village. There are five adults here and two children, sometimes more if the neighbor drops by. Sooner than I truly settled in here, I returned to the city once again in the sweeping pendulum arcs that whoosh me back from rural life to New York in long, semi-monthly ticks of the clock. I stayed for a few nights with Darcy M. and her family in the New Jersey suburbs. They had kitted out a backyard tool shed into a comfortable and stylish cabana, which is what we agreed to call it. Think soft lighting, crisp linens, air conditioning, even snacks and water. Darcy is the older sister to Katie, the woman with the chic Chelsea apartment. Let's agree that their entire family have been very good to me for a very long time, and I'm very grateful. They have kindness and taste and intelligence and humor. Honestly, they're some of my favorite people. But then, just as I was enjoying their cabana and those snacks and their company, the pendulum reached its apogee, and sooner than I realized, it whooshed me back to the country. As a coda, my latest fast foray from Vermont was three nights in Hudson, New York, in a VRBO, kind of like an Airbnb. The town was empty, persistent and beautiful in its own right, but mostly spectral. You can't walk to nature from Hudson. It was hot. The streets were blanks. All of the arts organizations had closed. Because newsflash, this is a terrible time to find a new home. Yes, I've said it before. I'm still relearning the lesson. As for my VRBO rental, think of it this way. Have you ever been tired and stressed out and you finally get into bed? You're eager for sleep and quiet and rest. You may even let out a little hurrah as you fall into the mattress. At least that's what I like to do. It's been a long day. You've now showered and changed into soft pajamas. You've had dinner. You finish your work. And while there's a twinge of worry, you've softened your mind. It's late. It's dark. Feels good to close your eyes. Bam! Then an 18-wheeler tractor-trailer thunders by your head. What the? Another massive truck shakes the building. Then another lays on its horn. Pounds the asphalt. Turns out the bedroom faces Hudson's truck route. Funny how the website doesn't mention that. It's been a Best Western hotel room, a Carlisle barn, Acton in-law apartment, Bristol outbuilding, Stowe Motel, East Hampton, not the Hamptons, Airbnb, a Chelsea apartment and its sister Maplewood Cabana, a Hudson truck stop and the Vermont family village. Ten places. A minion of beds. Okay, only with me and them, but you can't have everything. And that'll change soon. Like George Michael said, gotta have faith. You didn't think you'd get all the way through this without an 80s musical reference, did you? So tonight, I will sleep in a faded but entirely all-mine apartment attached to an 1830s farmhouse, just like I am attached to this sweet family. I will sleep on a fold-out futon sofa that feels as comfortable as that sounds, but it will be quiet. 
The Great Dipper will rise over the steel roof. The sky will be moonless as we head into the Jewish month of Elul. Friends will doze nearby. Then, a few hours after dawn, we'll be in the kitchen again and the girls will run in to announce they want to listen to the Orphan Annie soundtrack again and their parents will feed them while we talk deeply and meaningfully about the best way to get coffee from the espresso machine. It will be warm and safe and loving and it will go on until it doesn't. Thank you so much for listening to my latest podcast called Nomad in uh, mid to late August 2020 in Charlotte, Vermont. You can uh, get the essays emailed to you if you like. You can read them online. You can subscribe to this podcast. You know how to follow me on social media, I'm sure. And I'm just really grateful and thankful for your time. Be well and stay safe.